I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 42 to 47. If you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chair in front of you, you'll find our passage on page 911, okay, 911. Acts chapter 2, and uh, I'll begin reading for us in verse 42 as we continue our series in the book of Acts. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needed. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amen. Well, let's just jump right in. John's prayed for us, so let's just jump right in. And uh, what we see here, I'm going to give you some context here for what uh, these verses that we're looking at. What we've seen so far in the book of Acts is that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gave His disciples a mission. If you remember, not only did Jesus give them this mission, but He gave them a promise that He would send His Spirit, and by His Spirit they would be empowered to accomplish this mission. Then we come into Acts chapter 2, and in Acts 2 we see that Jesus pours His Spirit out upon the disciples who are gathered in Jerusalem, about 120 of them. And as they received the Holy Spirit, they began to tell other people about the mighty acts of God, what God had done in Jesus, that Jesus had lived a perfect life and died on the cross for their sins and been raised to conquer death. And as they are sharing this message with those people that are around them, Peter then, the chief of the apostles, stands up and he preaches. Um, At Pentecost, he preaches the gospel and about 3,000 souls trust in Jesus and commit to follow him as Lord. In our verses this morning, Luke introduces us to the church Okay, so that's what happens. That's what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. And now we come to these verses here in this text, and Luke introduces us to the church, who they are and what they are about. Now, this is especially important for us to consider this morning, in part because we are a church, right? And so if we're a church, it's natural that we would ask, well, who is the church and what are we to be about? Um, If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, then I think this passage is applicable and may be of interest to you as well. And first of all, let me say we're really glad you're here. We're really thankful that you're here. But maybe in the past, as you've thought about this whole concept of church, maybe it's been very confusing to you. Perhaps it seems very weird to you. Um, Although you may be confused about what the church looks like or what the church should be, I hope you see this as an opportunity this morning as we go to the text to learn from the Bible what is the church and what is the church to be about. We by no means here at Berea claim to have it all figured out. We are learning too. But if you say this morning you're not sure if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian yet, I hope you'll join us this morning in trying to understand more about who the church is and what the church is to be about. As we do that, I want us to look at our text in three parts this morning. We're going to consider three aspects of the church in Jerusalem, okay? And here they are. This will serve as our outline. Who they are, what they did, and the result. That's our outline. Those are the three things we're going to look at. First of all, who they are, that's their identity, right? Secondly, what they did, that's their activity. And then third, the result or the fruit. So first of all, who they are. 
This is found in verses 37 to 41. So in, in looking at this, I want us to go back just a few verses and start back in verse 37 and we read these words. Now, when they had heard this, and that is the message that Peter had just preached to them. So Peter had preached the gospel to them. When they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now here, right away, we see the work of the Holy Spirit. Peter has preached the gospel. Um, he's, uh, he's, he's exposed to them that they are sinners in need of God's mercy and grace. They experience true conviction of their sin. They know at this point that they've sinned against God and that they need to be reconciled to God. So God's Spirit is working. And then in verse 38... We read, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's the invitation of the gospel. The Spirit has convicted them. They're asking how they should respond and Peter extends to them the invitation of the gospel. They are to turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And then the promise of the gospel is that they will be forgiven, they will be washed, they'll be cleansed, they'll be made right with God. Not only that, but Peter says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will come upon you, He will take residence in you and indwell you. He will reassure you of God's love and forgiveness for you and empower you for mission. And then in verse 41, we see the response. So those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they responded to this invitation of the gospel, right? They turned from their sins. They trust in Jesus. They call out to Him for forgiveness. And they were reconciled to God. And now notice this in our text. Verse 41 is then followed immediately by verse 42, which is our text this morning. So Peter preaches the gospel. They repent and believe. And boom, they're doing church. Do you see that in our text? They believe in Jesus, and immediately a community is formed around Jesus. They believe, and boom, you have a church. So, who is the church? Because we'll see this repeated over and over again in the book of Acts. The gospel is preached, people repent and believe, boom, there's a church. So, who is the church? Well, we could say a lot of things here, but at its most basic level, the church is a community of people who have been broken by their sin, and who have been wonderfully forgiven and transformed by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. Now, in a few moments, we're going to look at what they do. We're going to look at their activity, and it's remarkable. There's a number of things in this text that they are doing, and, and it's presented to us as an example that we are to follow. But listen, my friends, don't forget that it starts with their identity. You know, there is a temptation to read a passage like this and to look at it and think, well, look at these different things they're doing, and we get, we get this list of things that they're doing and that we should do, and we think, okay, we're going to start doing those things, and then we'll be a biblical, healthy church. But don't forget that before they did anything, they were given a new identity. Being precedes or comes before doing. This is not just a list of things to do. In fact, as we see these things that the church is doing here, we could do all of these things out of duty, out of pride, out of self-justification. But that's not what's happening. These are people who have been changed by the grace and the mercy of God, and they are motivated by grace. 
They have experienced the free, radical grace of God. And now that grace is spilling out and overflowing into the lives of others. And it is a beautiful thing to witness. Robert Woodbury, who is a uh, sociologist, wrote a book in 2012 entitled The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And he is really tracing the impact of Protestant missionaries on the health and well-being of peoples, of nations. And the main idea of the book is captured in this quote. He writes, quote, Areas where Protestant missionaries had a significant, significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed today, with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations, end of quote. So what he's documenting, he's done, I think, over a decade of research. What he's documenting is that when Protestant missionaries enter into an area and they commit there and they serve there for extended periods of time, there are untold number of benefits that result in that society. But then he also goes on to make the point that, quote, most missionaries didn't set out to be political activists, but came to colonial reform through the back door, end of quote. And see, this is important. Let me explain to you what he's saying. What he's saying here is that although when Protestant missionaries commit to an area, when they commit to a region, when they serve and when they give themselves to those people, although there are many benefits that come out of that, they haven't in the past, if you look at it, they haven't gone primarily to be political activists or to bring about social reform. They've gone primarily to love and serve these people by sharing with them the grace and the mercy that they can know through Jesus Christ by His death and resurrection. And then as a result of that, as that is their main identity, as that is at the core of their ministry and the work that they do, there are all these other blessings that flow out of that. Social reform, better health, political transformation, all these other things begin to spill out of that. And this is what we see in the church in Jerusalem. They didn't get together one day and decide, hey, look, if we do these things, we'll be a really good community. Why don't we try that? They were changed and transformed by the grace of God, and it just starts happening by the Spirit of God. And a beautiful community is formed. The gospel creates beautiful community. And this is what we see in the church today. You know, as the church drifts from the gospel, as the church drifts from Jesus, as the church drifts from who He is and who we are in Him, things can go bad fast. And the church is imperfect. We do this, right? We drift and we have to repent and we have to turn to Jesus and we have to turn to His gospel and who we are in Christ and finding our identity in Him. But also, listen, my friends, when we are authentically treasuring the gospel, authentically trusting in Christ, authentically finding our identity in Him and living out of that, there is no more powerful, life-renewing, cultural-transforming reality in the universe than the people of God trusting and treasuring Jesus Christ living in the power of the Spirit. And historical evidence shows that. Now, what does it look like when gospel identity results in gospel activity? So, first of all, we considered who they are. Let's consider, secondly, what they did. What they did. What's their activity? Look there in chapter 2, verse 42, and we read these words. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread 
and the prayers. Okay, so initially here, notice that they devoted themselves. Uh, Once they trusted in Jesus to save them, they were devoted, they were given to Christ and to His church. And they gave themselves or persisted in three things in particular. The apostles' teaching, that's number one. Fellowship, which is number two. And worship, number three. So let's look at each one of these briefly. First of all, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, who are the apostles? Well, there's several different groups of people that have been mentioned so far in the book of Acts. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 15, you had the 120 disciples, right? And then uh, we read last week about the 3,000 that believed and trusted in Jesus. That's in chapter 2, verse 41. And then you have the 12 apostles who are mentioned as well. They would have been a part of uh, this larger group. And an apostle, here's the definition of an apostle. An apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ who was specifically called and commissioned by Jesus to proclaim and preserve His message. I'll give you that definition again. An apostle was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, so Jesus had been raised from the dead, and they witnessed Him, having been raised from the dead, who was specifically then called and commissioned by Jesus to proclaim and preserve His message. There's further evidence in our text of their special calling and office. It's in chapter 2, verse 43. We read, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, right? These wonders and signs were given in order to authenticate and verify their unique calling and office. The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So today we do not have, in this sense, we do not have apostles among us. Peter and James and John and Paul, they were given a unique call and a unique office for a unique time. But what we do have is the apostles' teaching. Their teachings have been divinely preserved for us and collected and handed down to us today in the New Testament. Now, what were the apostles' teaching? So we've given a definition of who the apostles are, but they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching? Well, by examining Peter's sermon from last week, and then by looking at the rest of the teaching of the apostles throughout the New Testament we know that the apostles would have been teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from the Bible, right? That's what they would have been teaching. That's what they did teach. That's what Peter proclaimed. That's what the rest of the New Testament is about. The gospel of Jesus Christ from the Bible, from the Old Testament Scriptures. So here's this new community. They have been created by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's the first thing that we learn about them? They love to hear the gospel taught and proclaimed from the Bible. They were committed to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to listening and learning and applying the gospel to their lives. And listen, my friends, when we are filled with the Spirit, we will have a similar longing for the Bible and for the gospel, to read it, to hear it, to treasure it, because God reveals the gospel to us through His Word. Now, secondly, notice that they were devoted to fellowship. The word here for fellowship is koinonia, which conveys the idea, that's in the original language, it conveys the idea of having something in common. And and so we ask the question, well, what is the one thing that these people have in common? 
And it's Jesus, right? That's the one thing that they have in common. They are broken, messed up sinners like every one of us. They've come to the realization that Jesus died for them, that they've been forgiven and transformed by His grace. And so their fellowship, their common relationship is rooted in the radical grace and generosity that they have received from Jesus. It is worth noting, I mean, we'll see this much more in the book of Acts as the gospel goes into other regions, but these Jews were from all over the Roman Empire, right? From different cultures, different backgrounds, spoke different languages, but here they are, they're all together, and how? They have the commonality of experiencing the grace and mercy of God in Christ. That's what brings them together. And it's out of this experience of receiving Jesus' radical grace and mercy that then they were radically generous and good to one another's, to one another and to others in their community. You see it there in verse 44 and 45. Luke fleshes out this idea of fellowship. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This seems to be true of their immediate community as they were caring and loving one another, but then also it was spilling out into the city, into the city of Jerusalem, the larger city. And the sentiment here among them is that God has been so good to us. God has been so kind and so forgiving to us. How could we not be good to others? How could we not love and bless and serve others? This is the type of generosity that the gospel inspires. Some wonder if this, and maybe you've heard this before, some wonder if this is an early example of communism here in the early church in Jerusalem. But it's clearly not. I mean, in fact, this is one of the reasons why it's so compelling, why it's so remarkable. Because communism is forced, right? Everyone is forced to consolidate their goods, and then a central power determines how those goods are to be dispersed. But this here, what's happening in the church in Jerusalem, this by no means was forced. This was radical generosity that was coming from somewhere deep, right? This, it was spontaneous, it was voluntary, it was joyful, They were willingly and happily giving to others for their good. Where does this type of generosity come from? Well, you might remember, some of you might know that in uh, the book that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he's writing to the Corinthians and he's admonishing them to take up an offering for some Christians who are experiencing famine in Jerusalem. And and he's admonishing them to do this. He's trying to motivate them and push them to do it. But, But he doesn't just say, do it, because that's your responsibility. Rather, he says, and you can find this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, but chapter 8 verse 9 encapsulates it well. In chapter 8 verse 9 he says, For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, God in all His glory and splendor humbled Himself and He became a man. Jesus said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. He was a common man who had nowhere to to lay His head at night. And then ultimate humility, then He gives Himself in death. And not only death, but even death on a cross. Why? So that we could be forgiven. So that He would take our sin and our punishment and we could experience forgiveness and mercy. And Paul says, look, if God has been so gracious and so good to you, if Jesus was rich and yet became poor on your behalf, would you not be good to others? Would you not sacrifice and show goodness and generosity and mercy and love and grace to others? So we see that 
They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. Both of these spring out of the gospel. They've been changed by the gospel. They want to hear the gospel. They want to grow in the gospel. They want to learn the gospel. So they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. They're devoted to fellowship because they've been changed by the gospel and experienced the generosity of the gospel. And now that extends into their relationships. And then third, they were devoted to worship. Look there in verse 42 and we read, And they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, most commentators agree that the breaking of bread is a reference to communion, the Lord's table, in which they would have broken bread and taken the cup and through that uh, symbolic act been reminded of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the prayers, uh, many commentators believe that with the article there, you notice it doesn't just say prayer, but the prayers with the article there, it seems to be a reference to more formal prayers that would have been offered in an assembly or a corporate gathering. So the breaking of bread and the prayers seems to be a reference to gatherings in which they would have worshipped God together. They would have taken communion together and be reminded of the death of Christ. They would have offered prayers together in worship to God. And then you see Luke elaborates on this in verses 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. We notice as well here that there's two types of gatherings. There's a larger gathering and there's a smaller gathering. There's a larger gathering that takes place in the temple. And, they would have, and the temple was very large. And so they would have been able to all meet um, in the temple at one point if they, if they so chose. And then they gathered in homes. So these are the smaller gatherings, right? Sounds very similar to having church on Sunday morning and home groups during the week, right? That's a modern expression of these types of gatherings. So they were gathering regularly for times of worship and encouragement. And again, I believe their worship here springs from their identity, right? Why did they worship? Because it was on a list of things that they were supposed to do as a church? No, rather because they were struck by the fact that they had been saved and forgiven, accepted by God and His mercy and sent on mission. And so how could they not worship? They loved to worship. They love to gather together and be with each other and remind each other of God's grace and to encourage each other in the gospel. You know, we've looked at each one of these in part, right? We've looked at each one specifically, but I think one thing that's helpful to do is we consider that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to worship, is now to take a step back and look at them all three together as a whole. We all have a tendency to focus on one of these things to the exclusion of the other, Uh, You can oftentimes know a church by the dominant feature of that church. So, for example, you might have the teaching church. The teaching church is a church that loves teaching and loves doctrine, but maybe they're not so much into relationships. They don't have time for non-Christians because that would take away time for them reading their books and studying all the time. Teaching churches can tend to be pharisaical, unfriendly argumentative. They like to fight about doctrine and show everybody how many Bible verses they know. Then you have the fellowship church, right? So if you have the teaching church, then another church might be the fellowship church. A fellowship church is a church that's all about relationships. They know each other and they love each other. They serve each other. And it's awesome if you're on the inside, but maybe they're not so interested in good teaching. The sentiment of in the fellowship church may be, we just want to be together. We're not really into all that Bible stuff. They can also tend to be insular. 
So the idea is that we're a family and we feel comfortable with each other. So we're not really looking to grow or expand or make room for more people. We're happy and content just the way we are. And you have the worship church. You know these churches. They're the churches that sing for 45 minutes and then they have a 10-minute sermon, right? They may tend towards emotionalism. They're always seeking a new experience. So every Sunday needs to top the previous Sunday. We could go on and on giving examples of different things that churches might emphasize to the detriment of other things. And listen, I give these examples not to say that we here at Berea have the perfect balance. I'm sure we don't. But to point out that where the gospel is central and where the Spirit is present, all of these activities are important and play a crucial role in being a balanced, biblical, and healthy church. And we should seek that balance not only in our own lives, but in our church body. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to worship. Now third, notice the result. Look there in verse 47. And initially we read, praising God and having favor with all the people. But then the second part of verse 47, this is what we want to focus on. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now notice, first that this was clearly a work of the Lord, right? The Lord added to their number. In the New Testament, the Lord is most often a reference to Jesus. And so what we see here is that the ascended Jesus, who has sent His people, who has sent His Spirit to His people, is building His church. This is just what Jesus had promised to do back in chapter 1. He's going to send His Spirit, and through that, He was going to empower His people for mission. This is what Jesus has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jesus here, the ascended Christ, is building his church. As much as we may have a role to play, to pray and to share, to preach and to suffer, at the end of the day, it is Jesus who saves and it's Jesus who builds his church. Paul stated it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. It's encouraging to know that although we are utterly unable to build Christ's church, he is entirely able to build his church. And he will and is. It's an historical fact that in the first three centuries, the church exploded in growth. In fact, I came across one estimation this last week that said in less than two centuries, the church grew from about 120 disciples to some 20 million. In the early centuries, the church expanded and grew rapidly and and, and spread all across the Roman Empire. The Lord was adding to their number. The Lord was building His church. You know, as we see this, one of the things we recognize is that growth and expansion is inherent to the gospel. We could say the gospel is like a vine. It it contains life, and it grows, and it expands naturally. That's what it does. Our family just recently bought a home, and before we purchased the home, it had been vacant for some time, and the previous homeowners had planted some ivy in the backyard, and because it had been left unattended for a while, it was everywhere. It had grown up all in the bushes and up into the trees, and I had to tear it all out. But the gospel is like that. The gospel is inherent in that it has a life, and it grows, and it expands. It takes new ground. Listen, I want to be careful. I know that gospel ministry doesn't always result in immediate fruit and immediate growth. Planting the gospel can be hard and difficult. 
I mean, you go into a certain region or a certain area and, and, and you, may have to, you may have to remove thorns and weeds and there may be big rocks or boulders that are in the way from planting the gospel. You may have to till the soil and you have to plant the seeds of the Word of God and pray and wait. It may take years or decades, but when the gospel takes root, it has a power. The gospel contains life, it contains power, it inherently grows and expands. And where the gospel touches people's lives, it changes them, it transforms them. Lives are miraculously changed. Churches are birthed and cultures are affected for the good. If we're to be a gospel-centered church, if we're to be a community on mission with the gospel, then we should always, always be eager for the Lord to add to our number. We should always be eager for more and more people to experience the grace and the mercy of Jesus, right? To come to the realization that I'm a sinner and I need God's grace and mercy and to be changed by that grace. We should be eager that more and more people would enjoy the benefits of Christian community, that more and more people would embrace the mission of Jesus to take the gospel to the nations. I was listening to Darren Patrick, who is a... um, a pastor of a local church this last week, and uh, he was talking about the danger of Christians becoming inward focused and disconnected from those who don't yet know Jesus. This is a danger. We can get to the point as Christians, it's very easy to do, where we're only friends with Christians. We don't know anybody else that hasn't experienced that grace in Christ yet. And he says that in part, this is Darren Patrick speaking, he says in part he can understand that because Christian community is like spiritual meth. How's that for imagery? That once you experience it, it's so addictive, you want more and more. And, And maybe some of you, I hope if you've never experienced that, I hope that you will. I hope that you have before. I hope most of you, I hope that you're walking in that now. You know, if you experience that for the first time, it's like, you know, you start to think of yourself, I'm, I'm talking to, to these people, I'm talking to this brother or this sister in Christ, I'm talking to them about spiritual things, I'm talking to them about my soul, about God's grace and mercy given to me in Christ. This is awesome. I'm talking about the struggles that I have with sin, and they're praying for me, and I'm praying for them, and we're sharing one another's burdens. This stuff matters. This is significant. This has content. You know, if you ever experience that, talking about football or The Bachelor just won't cut it. I mean, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with talking about those things. I talk about those things, as I mentioned in the first service, not The Bachelor, but football. (laughs) But if that's all you talk about, it's not really satisfying. And there is a danger once we begin to experience Christian community, once we begin to experience genuine Christian fellowship, that we'll become so insular that we'll only invest in relationships that operate on that level. But listen, do you see the heart of God here? We need to always be reaching out in love, reaching out to those who have not yet experienced Christ's grace and the benefits of Christian community, talking to them about spiritual things, inviting them into Christian community, inviting them into spiritual conversations. One last point from our verse here in verse uh, 47. Do you see that the spread of the gospel here in our text necessarily implies not only growth, but the growth of the church? You see that? Look there in the verse and we read, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
So it's not just that more and more people were becoming followers of Jesus, although that was true, more and more people were becoming followers of Jesus. But Luke writes, and the Lord added to their number. Well, what's their number? That's the membership of the church, right? Now, some people will say, well, where's church membership in the Bible? We could go to a number of different places. Here's one example. There was a number. They took a number, right? They knew who was in and who was out. They knew who had believed in Jesus and and who was a part of the community. They began with 120. Then there was 3,000. And the Lord was continuing to add to that number. So if more and more people are becoming followers of Jesus, then that necessarily implies from our text here that the church is growing because followers of Jesus follow Jesus in community. They follow Him in a church. He added to their number. So just like the early church in Jerusalem, if we are to be followers of Jesus, we should be a part of the number of a local church. And if we are to make disciples and we are to see people come to faith in Jesus, then we should naturally then point them to the church to live out that faith in community. Well, there it is, the church in Jerusalem, who they are, what they did, and the result. Let me ask you as we conclude, do you know who you are? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you experienced His grace and His mercy? Perhaps you say, I do know who I am, and that doesn't characterize me at all. I hope that this morning will be the first time that you confess your sins to Christ and that you call out to Him. The promise of the gospel is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Perhaps you are a Christian. You've trusted in Jesus before, but you're at a point right now where maybe even this morning you're overwhelmed with guilt. You're overwhelmed with shame. You're discouraged. And maybe you need to be reminded again of the gospel this morning of who you are and look to Christ again and receive the total forgiveness and acceptance that he has won for you at the cross. There's nothing you can do to earn it. He purchased it. What are you about? In response to this grace, in response to the mercy that God has given us in Christ, are you living in community? Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to worship? As a church, we can ask ourselves the question, how are we doing following Jesus in community? And then, my friends, let's pray. Let's pray for And expect from God true gospel growth, like we see here in the book of Acts. That we ourselves would be growing deeper in the gospel. That our lives would be transformed and changed by God's grace. That disciples would be maturing in the Lord. That leaders would be raised up. That churches would be planted. That missionaries would be sent out from our church to the nations. And that the gospel would be proclaimed to all peoples. This is true gospel growth as we see here in the book of Acts. And God in His mercy and grace has called us to be a part of it. Not just to live our Christian lives on our own, but to be a part of this community, this family that He's saving and using to bring the gospel to the nations. Let's embrace that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you and praise you for your word and so how it so clearly reveals to us who you are and who you are calling us to be and what you are calling us to do. And Father, we confess that in many ways we fail and uh, we pray that you would forgive us. 
And Father, we pray that increasingly we would be a community that is marked by this gospel, that finds our identity personally and corporately in Jesus Christ, our great Savior and Lord. And we pray that as we look to Him and as we walk in His grace, Lord, we pray that that would change us and, Lord, that it would spill out over out of our hearts into the lives of others. That we would love and serve our community well and those around us. That we would love and serve one another well. And, Lord, we pray that through that, you would produce fruit, fruit that lasts for all eternity. So, Lord, come now and do by your Spirit what you did in the church in Jerusalem, what you have been doing for 2,000 years through your church. Do that in us now, we pray, for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.